Hey everybody, this is Ray Felsch, and this is episode 9 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie selected specifically by our guest that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. This is Have Not Seen This, where the guest picks the movie and the host shuts his cake hole. Well, that's not entirely true, since I do have to speak up to be a part of the conversation and to help kind of guide the conversation each episode. But when it comes to the selection of the movie, the guest picks the movie and the host shuts his cake hole. That's kind of the golden rule for this podcast. And I've referenced it a couple of times in the past. And part of the reason I do that is because the as I've been setting up guests, they tend to come to me with a list of two or three movies, and then they ask, which one do you want to do? And it's been important to me that I have no input in that. And so I always reflect back to them, which do you feel most passionate about? It's the golden rule of this podcast, and here's why. The premise of this podcast was... Give me a movie that you're surprised that people have not seen, and you get bonus points if it's a movie I have not seen. As the host of the podcast, I want to have exposure to new movies. Out of the ten movies we've covered so far, and yes, this is episode nine, but I've already got next week all set up, out of those ten movies, there have been four that I've seen before, which means 60% of the movies selected have been movies that I had not gotten to see before this conversation. Out of those four that I'd seen before, three out of the four, it had been over a decade since I've seen. So getting to revisit them with new eyes and new experience and being in a different place in life was a really enjoyable asset. Of the six movies I hadn't seen, three of them I hadn't even heard of. So they weren't on my radar. The other three were on my radar and actually were on my list of movies I wanted to get around to, but I just, for one reason or another, hadn't. So... Having them brought up for the podcast gave me the push that I needed to finally sit down and see them. And some of them, I'm really glad that I did. But I'm not just the host of the podcast, I'm also the producer. And as the producer, I'm looking at the numbers side of things. How is my traffic doing? How can I increase that traffic? What can I do to try and make this not profitable per se, but break even, because it does cost a little bit of money to do this podcast. And on the number side of things, I would be tempted to guide selection of movie to touch upon the cultural zeitgeist. For example, last week, Dr. Sleep came into theaters, and I saw tons of news stories about Dr. Sleep and how it's not just a sequel to Stephen King's story, but also to Stanley Kubrick's movie adaptation of that. So it would have been very easy to go, hey, who wants to talk about The Shining? The week before that, Terminator Dark Fate was in theaters. And again, it was driving news stories. So it would have been very easy to have a guest on to talk about one of the many Terminator movies out there. But that's me guiding the conversation and selecting the movie, not because it's even something I want to see or want to revisit, but just because that's what's popular. And I want to avoid falling into that trap. There are plenty of other podcasts and other news sites that do that. And I totally understand why they do that, because they want to capitalize on the popularity of something. I want to talk about movies that people are passionate about. So I can't have a say in the selection of movies. So if you're out there hemming and hawing about 
what movie you would bring to the table. Just think about what you're most passionate about. Because if you bring me a list of movies, I'm just going to say, those sound really neat. Which one do you want to do? It's kind of the key premise of this podcast, that I wanted to have guests on, not just my friends. Kind of think beautiful anonymous. Strangers that I haven't met yet come to do the show, bring me a movie, and we get to talk about it. Because talking about a movie is a great unifier. It is something that we can do. If you're at a party and there are people you don't know, you can strike up a conversation talking about a movie. If you're going on a first date with somebody that you don't know very well, you can talk about a movie. It's a great way to break the ice. It's a great way to have a conversation with somebody new. And I wanted to bring that to this. And the other part of having somebody new on the show is that it's my intention not to repeat guests. And I'm having a little problem sticking to that. Out of the 10 guests that I've had so far, at least half of them have said, even in the recording of the episode, that they'd like to come back and bring another movie. And there's a part of me that doesn't want to do that because I want to get different voices in here. And then there's a part of me that when I suddenly at the last minute have somebody cancel and oh my god, am I going to have an episode this week, as happened with last week's episode, it would be very easy to fall back on calling up my dad or Katie or Monica or Chris and saying, hey, what do you got? So I may end up waving from that no repeat guests. I don't know. But I will not waiver from the guest picks the movie the host shuts his cake hole so last week we talked about pootie tang and over the course of that conversation marissa brought up that it was a so bad it's good movie so my friday inquiry on social media last week was what's your favorite so bad it's good movie and i got some really interesting answers uh jeff clark brought up killer clowns from outer space Luis Ramirez brought up Jaws, The Revenge. Chris Eklund brought up Zardoz. Chris Talent brought up Hudson Hawk, which was going to be my answer. Dion Nichols said Flash Gordon. Denise Lamont said Dungeons and Dragons, which I referenced a couple of weeks ago with Jeremy Irons. Tony Jackson said Kung Pao and the Greasy Strangler. Mark Creason said The Last Dragon. Amanda Branch brought up a ton of them. Six String Samurai, Turbo Kid, Half a Loaf of Kung Fu, Circuitry Man, Doll Man, Hell Comes to Frogtown, Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo, Cherry 2000, Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, Zardoz, yet again, Logan's Run, and that's just off the top of her head. So, some great answers out there, most of which I have to admit... I haven't seen, several of which I keep meaning to get to, such as uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. For some reason, I've never seen that. It's it's always been one that I've almost pulled up and then changed my mind about. And as I said, Chris Talent took my answer with Hudson Hawk, which I admit I didn't have time to sit down and watch the movie, but I did listen to a couple of songs from the soundtrack because it's just so cheesy. I mean, Bruce Willis, Danny Aiello singing to do robberies. There's just something so much fun about that. So if you're curious about what this week's question is going to be, make sure you check out our social media on Fridays, Twitter at have not seen this Facebook at have not seen this podcast, where I push that answer out on Fridays and hopefully get some good answers that we can talk about the following week. This week's guest marks a couple of new areas for me. For one, it is the first guest that reached out to me and asked to be on the show, not someone that I had 
previously targeted or or known. I'd heard him on several episodes of Double Edge Double Bill, but was really happy when he reached out with me. His name is James Rodriguez, and he brought Taika Waititi's Boy to my attention. As though I'm familiar with Taika Waititi, it was a film that I was not aware of. And as you'll hear in the conversation, it's a movie that really moved me in unexpected ways. So here we go with James Rodders and 2010's Boy. So what part of the UK are you in? Um, in Wiltshire, which is more countryside kind of area. Nice. Mm. I, I got to go to London a couple of years ago and visited some of the outlying areas. So um, it's gorgeous out there. Oh, yeah, it's lovely. But public transport, good luck. <laughs> is that not really an option um well i went to london a couple weekends back um two hour journey took me double that because of unforeseen circumstances as it said oh no yeah it made for a lovely way to start things off and to end things i'm sure i'm sure <laughs> so what kind of movies do you generally like um I like to try all different kinds of films, but I gravitate most towards the horror genre and the comic book films. Um, I like a bit of darkness with my superhero fare. Gotcha. So was, was this film your introduction to Taika Waititi or did you find him through Thor Ragnarok? Or No, actually. Um, the first film I saw him of his was technically... I. Actually, technically, I Green Lantern I saw first because he starred in that. But, oh yeah, yeah. But we all like to forget that one. <laughs> yeah, sorry for bringing it up. But no, the first film he actually made I saw was What We Do in the Shadows, and right. I, yeah, I was just blown away and thought, whatever he does, I'm following it on. And uh, lucky me, it led to four, so that really appealed to me. Yeah, he did a fantastic job with with Thor. I oh mean, yeah, he really reinvigorated the character in a way it needed. Yeah, and that's I mean, there's all this complaint going on right now about how superhero movies all are kind of built into one mold and they mm. just are repetitious. And it's like, no, look at Thor Ragnarok. That's doing something new with the genre. Yeah, it's even if it follows a typical setup or whatever, it's. I think the directors have enough of their own stamp on it to make it the unique and stand apart from what the rest of the genre delivers. Because, I mean, would you really look at Thor Ragnarok and Black Panther and Captain Marvel and say, oh, yeah, that's all the same film? Nah. Right. No, they're they're absolutely... Absolutely different. I love the three that you picked as the example, mm. because you have Waititi doing comedy in a superhero genre. Uh, Black Panther is definitely, you know, it's its own thing. And then Captain Marvel goes back to being kind of the mainstream, what we think of when we think of comic book movies. Yeah, it's a good assortment to show how much diversity you can get within the genre on screen, in front of the camera and behind. Yeah. So what is your favorite horror movie? Because you said you, you tend to tune towards horror movies. Uh, my favorite would be the original John Carpenter's Halloween. Oh, yeah. Mm, I make a point to watch it every October 31st because that was when I first watched it. And so I've been doing it since 2011, actually. 
Now, Halloween's not as big a thing over there as it is here, right? No, I've... Well, I mean, my reference point for Halloween in America is from TV series where people dress up going to work and in school. But over here, it's just a couple of sales on around the local supermarkets and parents taking their kids trick-or-treating and maybe the odd horror film in cinemas. That's pretty much it. Yeah, it's a bit different. (laughs) <laughs> I I didn't realize that until just recently, so that's that's interesting mm. to hear. Well, let's talk a little bit about this week's film, uh, which you have selected Taika Waititi's Boy from 2010, mm-hmm. which uh, I had not heard of before you bringing it up and uh, really enjoyed watching. Uh, as I said, it's Boy, it's a very simple title, directed and written by Taika Waititi, starring James Rolleston, Te Aho Aho Ektone Witu. Taika Waititi himself, among others. Kia ora, my name is Boy, and welcome to my interesting world. My favourite person is Michael Jackson. Want to see some Michael Jackson dance moves? My favourite subjects are art, social studies. Kick both your nuts off. And you have none. And Michael Jackson. I have a six-year-old brother called Rocky. He's got powers. Hey, boy. Sure, boy. Hey, boy. Thank you, boy. I'm named after my dad. He's overseas doing some pretty important stuff. I mean, you're a liar. Your dad's in jail for robbery. People call me a dumb honky all the time. I don't go around punching them out. Why not? Because they use your children. Who are you? Boy. Alright. I'm your dad. Oh. Think you can handle having the incredible hope for a day? How long was he here for? Don't know. No, she was my dad. What are you looking for? Treasure. Can you stop calling me dad? Sounds weird. Right, so I have not seen this movie. As I said, when you first brought it up, I hadn't even heard of it. How do you describe this movie to someone who hasn't seen it? How do you sell it to them? Well, I think I'd say about how it's a story about a boy reuniting with his personal hero, which is his father, and realizing that he's the man is not what is what he remembers, what he built up in his mind but it's delivered with such heart and humour that it's not as depressing as it sounds. And to sell the film further, I'd drop how it's from the director of what For Ragnarok and Hunt for the Wilder People. Yeah, I think bringing his credentials to the table goes a long way with, uh, with selling this. Because if you had just told me uh, I'd like to do the movie Boy... Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know that I, I mean, I would have taken it because that's what I do. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I, as soon as you said, you know, boy from director Taika Waititi, it was like, I'm on board uh, instantly, instantly. So why out of all of the movies that are out there, and especially for someone who said they have an affinity for horror and superhero movies, why, why boy? Why is this your pick? Well, I was thinking about films relating to horror and superheroes, which I could bring up. Um, superheroes, I felt, no, even something which didn't do super well at the box office like Spider-Man to Spider-Verse is still 
popular enough that, that I think bringing it to this would be a bit, uh, not going against what your show wants, but feeling a bit too much, if that makes sense. And Yeah, no, I gotcha. Um, I decided to just step away from specific genres and think, what film do I think I could talk on about? And my mind landed on this, and I just felt happy with picking it. Um, funny enough, we didn't even get this film in the UK until about two years ago, and that was pretty much because Thor Ragnarok was coming out, and it was sold very much as from the director of Thor Ragnarok. Interesting. Mm. So it hadn't even made a splash over there, despite being uh, a huge success in its own country. Yeah, it's funny that, because I saw that it was, when it came out, it was the biggest film in New Zealand. But over here, it didn't seem to be much known unless you specifically looked for it, or it definitely wasn't sold in DVD shops or regularly shown on TV or anything. Gotcha. Now apologies if not not trying to offend but mm-hmm. you sound like you're rather young um yes i'm 27 years of age so the 80s don't really exist to you other than uh the snapshots you get in in pop culture pretty much i only really know the 80s from their output and from what the what everything depicts it as which is usually through roast into glasses right and and this movie definitely has that it is it is very deeply set in 1984 with a, a ton of 80s cultural references made <laughs> throughout the movie and as someone who was a, alive at that point and actually frankly right around boy's age at that point uh, i totally connected with that part of the movie especially just the absolute adoration of michael jackson yeah i can imagine he was especially big around that time that was um, correct me if I'm wrong, but that must have been when he was at the height of his fame, pretty much. Yeah, it was around there. I mean, Thriller, I think, came out in 82. Uh, 84, you're in between Thriller and Bad. And yeah, I mean, he's he's a, he's a superhero. Mm. And even though he's doing, I mean, Boy brings up some of the weird stuff. Like he makes millions of dollars off of this album and then he moves into a castle where he <laughs> lives with a monkey and, and, and all of that's real. I mean, it's like you can't make that up. <laughs> yeah, it does seem like the ramblings of a child exaggerating, but it is based in reality. And it's, yeah, it's quite funny to look back on and see like that. Well, the, the other reason I connected with this movie pretty deeply and I'm going to try not to get emotional while we're recording this show, but mm-hmm. um, I have a son who's around boy's age. Boy is 11 years old in the movie, I believe, and mm. my son is 10. And watching as boy idolizes his father, and then over the course of the movie comes to realize the truth about his father, hit me kind of hard. It it reminded me of a, a Simpsons quote mm. uh, where Homer Homer Simpson said, uh, I think the saddest day of my life was when I realized I could beat my dad at most things. And Bart experienced that at the age of four. And it was almost this, is this how my son is eventually going to see me? Does he see me as a hero now and he eventually is going to see my flaws exposed? Or how do you how do you avoid that? Or how do you deal with that? And, and that's not an aspect... Taika Waititi was really hitting with the movie, but mm. from where I am in life, that's an aspect that definitely connected with me. No, I can 
in part, I can understand that because, I mean, I don't have any children of my own that I know of, but I, <laughs> but I can relate from boys' side of things where I'm not going to get into it, but growing up, I looked up to my dad, and as I grew older, I realized that what I was seeing was a bit more, shall we say, flawed. And to see Boy realize that and come to terms with it, were it quite hit me. And the bit which hit me the most was Boy actually slapping his dad. And when he just mm. really unleashes all his built, pent up rage and coming from the realization that what he was remembering wasn't wasn't how it actually happened. It was him lying to himself to make things easier in the same way that he kept telling stories to his younger brother to make it easier for him. And it's interesting the way you phrase that about him, him lying to himself, Hmm. his fantasies about his father aren't drawn from his father. They are things because when the film opens, his father is gone. He's not in the picture. And especially as we get the introduction with Boy telling us about the, the life that he lives and the world he lives in, and we see these fantasies about the, his father, they're simply things that he himself has come up with. Yeah, it's his way of building a mythology for his father to make him as this almighty hero who does all these amazing things and who has the world record for hitting the most number of people with one hand it's his way of connecting with his father in a way that he only can do through fantasies. Right, right. Uh, let me talk a little bit real quick about uh, the critical response to this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, when it came out in, in it came out in 2010, as we said, it's got an 87% at Rotten Tomatoes, which is pretty darn good, That's and a good. 70% at Metacritic. Hmm. Um, Roger Ebert did review the movie, and his review was that a few elements could possibly overwhelm Boy – The father could turn out to be bad to the bone, introducing a threat to the son. And the movie, which includes flip card style animation, threatens to go overboard on flashy style. Neither thing happens, and what gradually reveals itself is a bittersweet coming-of-age experience in which Boy outgrows his hero worship and realizes most of Alamein's most admirable qualities exist only in his imagination. Which is almost word for word what you just said. Uh, On the flip side... And it was really hard to find a negative review of this movie. But Uh on the flip side, Gary Goldstein of the LA Times wrote, Mm. The New Zealand set coming of age quirk fest boy proves as slight as its minimalist title. Like the film's lead character, a scrappy 11-year-old everyone calls simply boy, there's much potential here. But writer, director, and co-star Taika Waititi never builds much momentum for his largely uneventful, if sometimes inventive, story. It's nice to have a balance. (laughs) <laughs> well, I tried to provide both sides. And as I said, Ebert mm. uh, almost word for word said what you said about these qualities existing in his imagination. Mm. What do you think about Goldstein's accusation that there's not much momentum and it's uh, uh, an uneventful story? Um, I suppose if you're looking at it from what happens plot wise, it just seems to be boy tries to bond with his dad, but his dad's a bit of a git. But... I think what really drives the film is the character development. And I think that about Waititi's work, period, it just seems like he focuses, no matter how big his cast is or 
what the plot is. He just seems to have character as the most important thing to deliver. And for me, for me, it doesn't matter that the plot may be a bit slight because I really care for these characters and that's because of the stellar work that's gone into it. Well said. Yeah. I mean, he definitely, I think he drives a a huge emotional connection between the audience and Mm. these characters, especially boy, but also his little brother, Rocky, who is carrying around the guilt of their mother's death because she died when she was giving birth to Rocky. And how do you have that on a, I don't remember how old Rocky is, like seven or eight. How how do you put that on the shoulders of a seven or eight year old? And part of that is because their father wasn't around. No, it's quite a hard thing and it's very well delivered. And I think that Rocky saying that, oh, I killed her because of my powers. I think it's personally, it's boy's way of kind of making it easier Rocky to by concocting another story to help him through this grieving process in his own way. Yeah. I loved the the subplot of, of Rocky thinking he has powers from the <laughs> moment that's introduced. And that's that clip is in the trailer of him trying to make the bus explode to his work with the, the mentally impaired man mm. and, and then talking to his dad about, you know, sorry, I killed mom with my powers. I, I, that's a very childish thing to walk around and think that you have powers. And I think YTD captured that perfectly with that character. Yeah. It does seem to be coming from an innocent perspective, which um, Rocky has. And I think that leads well into the drawings we see, like when you said Rocky trying to move the bus and then we see the flip book of him imagining his powers have done what he wanted. I think it's a nice lead on. Oh yeah, I agree. So Boy himself as a character is actually really complex. Mm. He introduces to a, a ton of characters at the beginning in like the first three or four minutes, some of which with absolutely crazy names, like the family who the kids are Dallas, Dynasty, and Falcon Crest, <laughs> which are 80s soap operas. But Boy is different from these other characters in that he has a ton of responsibility. We see his grandmother go away for a funeral in the opening scene and then it's all on boy to take care of these kids and to 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 be the man of the house essentially even though he's an 11 year old kid who still has to go to school and such and what i found interesting about that is that when dad shows up and boy starts to i guess grow up or be more like his father, the more grown up he acted, the less responsibility he provided for his family. Hmm. That's a good point. I suppose in trying to be more grown up, how he sees his father is, he's not really acting like an adult because Alamein himself has his own fantasies. He sees himself as this badass rebel who runs this badass biker gang but really he's just a pathetic little man that's not really growing i think that's very perceptive about him being someone who stops growing because we see the scene of him kind of playing war with his kids Mm -hmm. where they're you know picking up the sticks and it's pretending to be a machine gun and they're storming the beach and that kind of stuff and then late a couple scenes later boy is looking at pictures of his mom and his dad and his dad was doing the same thing in those pictures. Oh, he never grew up. 
Oh, I never picked that up. Good, good eyes. Yeah, he has he has one of the sticks as if it's a rifle in one of those pictures. It's like he he he's this is a kid who never grew up. Huh. So I guess based on that idea of him being a kid who never grew grew up, do you think this is a coming of age story for boy, or do you think it's a coming of age story for Alamein? Um. I heard this quote a while back of director Jennifer Reeder saying she believes that coming of age is a lifelong process. It's not just something you do in your teens, but you're constantly evolving and growing yourself. And in that way, I suppose, yeah, it is Alamein growing up and coming of age and learning to to grow as a person and be more responsible because it's like you said boy has a ton of responsibility at the beginning and by the end of it he's well he's not exactly all the more responsible he's still taking care of his kid brother and telling him stories to make it easier to make the reality easier on rocky and he's still looking after his cousins but i suppose his cousins are all pitching in a bit more at the end so maybe it's also the cousins who are helping out Boy in a way. Yeah, I mean, we we get to see Boy return to that level of responsibility after he neglects them. And I think that's part of his coming-of-age story. But, you know, Alamein, we think he's leaving again. And we have every reason to believe, mm. several times, in fact, over the course of the movie, we have every reason to believe that he's leaving now and we're not going to see him again. And then he shows up in another scene and, oh, he's leaving now and we're not going to see him again. And when we see him in that final shot of the movie, it feels like there's been growth for that character that somewhere along the way, for some reason, he's finally, it's finally clicked with him that he's letting these boys down and that he needs to be a responsible adult for them. I think that's right. And what's even more powerful about that ending for me is that so much is conveyed between Taika Waititi and James Rolleston on their faces and so much is said, but not a word is said between them. It's just all captured in their heartbreaking expressions. And it's just really gets me emotionally. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Did you hear the story about James Rolleston? Um, that he wasn't the first choice. Yeah, that they were a week away from filming and Waititi realized the boy he had cast in the lead role was not working for him. And Rolleston was an extra who he gave the part to two days before they started filming. Hell of a good job. He took that extra role then. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. He's phenomenal in this Mm. as this kid. Personally, it took me a little while to get acclimated to the, the New Zealand accents. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just a shortcoming of me, but his performance through it all is just beautiful from the ferocity. When he strikes out at the, the bully in class you know, mm-hmm. to the he he calls his little brother, you know, an egg throughout the movie, but it's said half the time with disdain and half the time with with love. Mm. Yeah, it's like uh, his own little nickname for him, and it's as much as he, as you said, says with with disdain. It's he says it so much; it's a term of endearment, also. Yeah. So when when Dad first shows up in the movie, and I, I, again, you know, it's my first time watching mm-hmm. the movie. I I didn't know, if, and I didn't know from the trailer if that actually was Dad, because when you watch the trailer, it's like Dad shows up, but then it also shows in the trailer Dad telling Boy, 
you know, don't call me dad. Stop calling me dad. And I was hesitant about whether or not this was actually dad, especially because of the way that scene is played. They sit in the car and talk with boy and boy offers them tea and they're still sitting <laughs> in the car drinking their tea. And it isn't until he puts boy to bed and he's exiting the room and he moves a picture frame in the room and underneath it is a swastika. And he references mm. that, that it was like, Oh, well there's no way he would have known that picture was there if he wasn't the one who put it there. Uh, in a way, it's a nice little foreshadowing for Jojo Rabbit. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's interesting that um, Alamein says to Boy, don't call me dad. But in a way, he wants to call him his son to call him Shogun. It seems like another way of living in his own reality, that he'd rather be looked upon as a badass leader He'd rather go by the name which he took from the, I think, was it a novel or a video he had? Yeah, um, yeah, it's a novel. He'd rather go by that than admit responsibility and be called dad. Well, and that goes along with the the crazy horses East Coast, mm. his motorcycle gang, and yet there's not a motorcycle to be seen in the movie. <laughs> That's a good point. So th- that totally goes with that fantasy that you're talking about, about, yeah, call me Shogun. And what does Boy then do a couple scenes later? He says, stop calling me Boy, call me Little Shogun. Yeah, it's just him further trying to be his, like his father to pass himself off as, well, his role model. Right. Without considering whether or not that should be his role model. Mm. Because it's his dad. Yeah, it's the idea that that man's his dad. He should look... Oh my god, I'm going nowhere with this one. Um, forget I said anything. <laughs> no, 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 that was a good point. That, that he should look upon his dad just automatically. That that should be our role model. And I, mm. I guess that's where it emotionally hit me. Was, you know, is my son going to reach a point where I'm not his role model? And, and again, that's not something Waititi, I think, was intending to say with the movie. But it definitely was what it left me thinking mm. is, you know, what did Shogun do to prove that he was worthy of his son's admiration? Well, we see a whole movie where he proves he's not worthy of it and he has it anyway. And I just look at that and I see the flip side of what can I do to make sure I am worthy of my son's adoration? Sounds like you took a wonderful amount from this little film. I did. I, I told you it, uh, it really impacted me. Fantasy being a, Common theme with all of our characters. I particularly love boys' Michael Jackson fantasies. <laughs> oh, yeah, the reenactment. The reenactment of Billie Jean that Taika Waititi gets to to dance the Billie Jean dance complete with the light-up floor. Uh, later, we see when the gangs are going to rumble, we see in, in boys' mind, instead of a bunch of motorcycle guys heading after his dad, he sees it as beat it, that they're going to have a dance-off with knives. And the thriller bit mixed with hacker dances. I'm glad you brought that up. My my girlfriend I was watching the movie with brought that up when we were watching that. And I was like, what's a hacker dance? And she had to explain to me. Do you want to explain that? Um, I honestly, I don't really know. It's a <laughs> traditional Maori custom, uh, which is they're doing the thriller dance. But if you look at the faces that boy is making throughout it, that's kind of the Hakka tradition of making those kind of faces to show how fierce you are. It's a it's a warrior ceremony. It's a nice way of integrating the culture into the film. 
It is. It's it's brilliant. I mean, Wachiti does a great job with that here. It seems to have been drawn upon from his own experiences because he actually filmed the movie in the school he went to and in his grandma's house. Did he? I see. I couldn't find any information about that. He did an interview with IndieWire about it, and he mentions that. Um, he went back to his hometown of, oh, I'm going to butcher this name, Waihua Bay, and yeah, filmed in his old school in his grandmother's houses and really drew upon his experiences. Wow. Especially his love for Michael Jackson. <laughs> So I guess that part of the film is just kind of allowing himself to fill out a dream by uh, dancing those Michael Jackson dances. <laughs> Pretty much, but it's a good way to enact your dreams. It is. It is. Uh, I guess filmmakers get lucky that way. So these kids, uh, there was another line that really stood out to me where Boy is talking to his friends. This is uh, after he has the the date with Chardonnay where they – just oh, yeah. sit in the car and nuke potatoes, the awkward date. And he's talking to somebody else and he, he's, he's talking about his dad. And then when you guys leaving, don't know. When my dad's free, I guess, but he's a busy man. They always are. So it's almost like it's a shared experience with all these kids that their dad isn't really in the picture. Uh, yeah, it's seems to be. Um, apparently it's, in that interview I mentioned, it's stuff like that where the kids were left to their own devices is a regular thing. Waititi actually says it wasn't a very unique upbringing in that town to be looked after by your grandmother while your parents were off partying. It was really cool. It was a town run by kids. That is neat. Yeah, I mean, the mm. 80s were, in America, the 80s were a lot looser as far as that goes than than things are now. I mean, I, I remember being left at home for hours by my parents. I grew up in the countryside. And there was no concern. I mean, I would I'd leave the house on my bike and I would be gone all day and I'd be at this neighbor's house or that neighbor's house or or just out in the woods. And there was never any question as to where I was or whether I was getting into trouble. I mean, it just was it was such a more trusting time for kids. Also, I guess, a trusting time for neighbors. Do you think that um, further generations of kids who are left like that have then become a bit more a bit more protective because drawing on their own experiences from such a time. That's a good question. And I, I, I don't know. I don't feel more protective of my son because of the experiences mm. that I had as a child. In fact, if anything, I mourn that he doesn't get those same experiences. I, I don't, I think we've become less trusting of our neighbors and of our culture as a whole. And I wonder if some of that isn't because of social media and internet uh, allowing news to spread. I think we were a lot more ignorant in the 80s, or our parents were a lot more ignorant in the 80s of what was out there. And mm. now we're so keyed up by what we do know, we're less trusting of letting our kids have that same experience. Yeah, I suppose there's always a bit of a worry when you have um, bad people in the world. And like you said, the spread of that news to make us more aware of it. It would be interesting to see if that same village that Waititi grew up in, how they handle things now, if they still let the kids mm. run rampant and, and as he put it, let the kids run the town, or if it's a more controlled environment now. Hmm. That is a good point. I guess we won't really know until we go there. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
oh, another reference that I absolutely loved, which couldn't have been anywhere near intentional at the time. But when dad gives his apology speech to boy, he talks about how he's the Incredible Hulk. Sorry I am like I am sometimes. I get angry. But like the Hulk, he gets angry. He is usually helping people. But sometimes he loses control. He's not a bad guy. Mainly he's a good guy. Think you can handle having the Incredible Hulk for a dad? Yep. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, 15 years later, you have Taika Waititi getting to direct the Incredible Hulk as a character in Thor Ragnarok. God, it is really all coming full circle with his films. (laughs) Well, and that's, it's an interesting thing that I thought about, because, you know, he's, this isn't the only coming of age film he's done. Obviously, Jojo Rabbit in theaters right now, as we were recording this. Uh, at least here in America. I don't know if it's out there yet. Not till January. Oh. See, Jojo yeah. Rabbit's out right now. There's a coming-of-age story. Boy, oh. coming-of-age story. Uh, what was the other one you mentioned? Um, Hunt for the Wilder People. Hunt for the Wilder People is kind of a coming-of-age story. And if you think about it, Thor Ragnarok is kind of a coming-of-age story because it is Thor finally mm. kind of accepting his place and his responsibilities. That's a good point. And in a way, Bruce Banner is accept, becoming more accepting of the Hulk and the two sides that is himself. Yeah. So did have you seen anything? I mean, you, you saw this interview with Waititi, which I, I'm mm. sorry I missed it. I'll have to look for it. Have you seen anything to indicate why this is such a recurring theme in Waititi's work? No, I haven't. But that's an interesting point. Maybe he's drawing from personal experience. I'm, I can only theorize. Yeah, I mean, that's that's all I could guess too. But it seems to be an important theme for him regardless. Mm. I suppose it's not really something that can be uh, overstated. It's something a lot of people are going to get through no matter what time period you live in, no matter what part of the world you're in. I suppose it's a theme that is very... Universal. Worldwide. Universal, that's it. I was thinking worldwide for some reason. <laughs> so you said this movie only came to your area in the past, what, two years? Yeah, funnily enough, they um, did this thing where on the same day, you could either go to cinemas to watch it, watch it on TV, or get the DVD of it. And since no cinemas were nearby showing it, and I was a bit broke, I just put it, watch it on TV. And what was your first respect reaction to this movie? I was blown away by it. I really loved it. I it really connected with me, especially those those last twenty minutes or so. And I remember just after it, just really letting it settle and just thinking, "Yeah, this is my favorite YTT film." So, what about it connected with you? What what uh, what do you see in it? Because I've already talked about what I see in it as a father. Mm-hmm. What do, what do you see in it? I see in it a story of growth of how no matter your age that you can still grow, but it's never too late to do so. And I see, I saw in it a touching relationship and a story which brought the laughs, but never shied away from the harsher moments. Like one moment that stuck with me was when boy has seen his friend, I want to say dynasty, um, he saw her after him and his father stole 
her parents' marijuana plant, and he just sees Dynasty with a black eye, and he just understands the ramification of his actions there. Yeah, and I mean, that is that are the consequences for his actions. He's the Mm. reason that that happened. Yeah, he told his father, and he was the one who brought the plant to his father in the first place to kind of show off, look what I got. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it's not that scene, but I think the next one with Dynasty where he finds her in the they're sitting in the broken down house. Mm. And that's another one of the scenes that you talked about, like with his father, where there's no real words. It's all the emotion of the face and the actions. And he goes over and sits down with her and pulls out his sparkler, mm-hmm. which I presume was his last one. Cause I think he said early on, he only had a couple left. Yeah. So it's the act, which is the act, which helped things and said a lot more than if he gave the typical speech of, I'm sorry for what I did. Let me make it up to you. Yeah. But the way that that's filmed and the emotion that the actors carry just, just carries it all. I mean, that's, it's a, it's a wonderful scene, as you said. And hard to believe he was an extra. It was pure luck that he was cast as the lead. Yeah, absolutely. There's an aspect of the film I'm curious as to your interpretation of, because okay. his behavior stems from his dad, as we said. The more his mm-hmm. dad is around and the more he sees what his dad is like, and the more he's trying to be like his dad, the the more he's also shirking his responsibilities. But we also have this, I, I don't know that I want to call it a love story, but love story with him and this girl that he likes, Chardonnay. And they go out on, as we said, it, it's a terrible date. <laughs> they sit out in the car and they microwave potatoes. And he makes his statement mimicking his dad about, uh, you can see my dick, but I can't get you pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that comes from his dad, right? Mm. But then later on, when they see the girl with one of the class bullies, he claims that he slept with her and he's very disrespectful about her. And I don't see that coming from his dad. Where do you think he picked that up from? Oh, that's a good point. Um, my first thought is it's probably in a way also from his dad. Yes, but not the disrespectful to women bit. It's him fudging a story to make himself seem bigger and to pass himself as something which he isn't. I mean, yes, he did that before, but when his dad come, came out, he didn't do it in such a disrespectful manner. It was more to tell stories to his brother and to big up what his father is like. Right. Yeah, I mean, that just that struck me as a little odd for the character, but I think that, that might, you might have a good point there. Mm. So what does potential mean? <laughs> do, you want, <laughs> do you want me to... Bring up the dictionary definition. No, that's that's good. I appreciate that. That's an odd line that's brought out early in the film and is brought out a couple of times in the film, this idea of potential. Oh, yeah, because the teacher said his dad had potential. And then he brings it up again. Uh, he, he brings it up, I want to say, three times about mm. potential here and potential there and uh, not really knowing what potential means. And then when he finally has his confrontation with his dad, after he he slaps him, as you brought up, Mm. he says to him, 
And all I can think is, no, that's why you do have potential. Um, remind me, did he actually look up the word potential before then? He he did, yes. I, if I remember correctly, ah. he does look it up in the dictionary. Um, but I don't think he ever understands what it means. Hmm. So it's possible, yeah, he misinterprets what the word is. So it's just his way of further distancing himself from his father. Yeah. But distancing himself from his father is what he needs to meet his potential. Mm. At least his father in the state that he's in at that point in the movie. I mean, his dad's not a good guy. He's not a bad guy, but he's he's a child. Yeah, he's regressed. And I've, I found it interesting when they're they're driving home uh, and they hit they hit the dog, which you know isn't a dog. Oh. That the way Alamein deals with that is by telling boy what he wants to hear, you know, let's just go. And then tomorrow we'll get in the car and we'll leave town and we'll, we'll go see Michael Jackson. And, and it's like, that's the point that I really realized how disconnected Alamein was from any responsibility or reality. Yeah. It's him telling lies and promising things, which he's not going to deliver on rather than actually face up to what he's done and use it to grow as a person. Yeah. And and that's that's also kind of the definitive minute of where boy comes around because he goes back for the goat and he buries the goat. Mm. You know, that's the point that he realizes he can't keep following his dad down that path. Yeah, cuz after that he goes to visit his mother and he has the realization of his father not being there for him when he needed him. Well, and and dad's friends turn on him. I mean, it, yeah, dad dad's actions have consequences too. Oh yeah, he can't just keep lying and acting like it's all going to be okay. It comes to bite him in the ass before he knows it. <laughs> so we see early on, the the one act of boy's cruelty early on is him picking on the, the, the mental weirdo, as he calls him, at the beach. Mm. And then we see uh, Rocky befriend this character. I don't think we ever get a name for him. He's just the mental guy. Mm, no, I think you're right. Not really named. What do you think why TT brought this character in for? Why Why do you think this character's there? I think initially he was brought in so, yeah, so Boy could be mean to him and chuck rocks at him and be a bit of a shit. But then when Boy falls off the bridge at the end and the man helps Boy, and I'm not sure if he caught Boy or if he pulled him out of the water but the way i took that bit was that the man had that it was boy growing as a person and it was the man forgiving boy and it's i think that could lead into the last scene where it's boy having a bit of forgiveness when he sees his father is truly sorry for for the way he's been over the film. Oh, okay. I was wondering what you meant by boy growing as a person, but so he was mean to the mental guy mm. and the mental guy turns around and forgives him and saves him. And so boy sees from that, that forgiveness is a possibility. Uh, yes. Um, 
that sounds more eloquent. So let's go with that. <laughs> well, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm just trying to, um, how do you think boy grows from his interactions with the, the, the mentor guy? Um, well, now I'm kind of contradicting myself because the scene after the gentleman saves him, he slaps his dad and lets it all out. Well, that's true. But I think that's also an important scene. Of course, it's where his father, well, to be fair, his father wouldn't really grow without that heavy hit of realization that of what he's been like. Yeah. I mean, they definitely push each other to grow. You know, as mm. I said, Alamein not wanting to go back for the dog that he hit, not wanting to take responsibility for that is really what finally strikes Boy as this isn't the right way to go. And Boy striking Alamein literally is what finally, I think, gets him to realize this isn't the right way to go. That's mm. why I'm just, that's why I couldn't figure out really where this, I, I hate to keep using the term mental person, but that's what, that's how they refer to him in the movie. But I, I couldn't figure out where he fits in, but I, I, I like your idea of forgiveness. It's honestly, I was thinking of it and that was really the only thread I could see him see his inclusion ending up at. But yeah. in a way, could it be Alamein learning to forgive himself as well? Cause he never visits boy's mother's grave until that final scene. He's like, he's kind of avoiding it because he blames himself, but he won't admit it. Yeah. I mean, we even see him get close to the graveyard earlier on mm. in the movie, but he refuses to go in. I think that's why it really surprised me for him to be sitting there at the gravestone at the end. I didn't think he was capable of such a thing. Well, it's quite nice that you proved you wrong then. Yeah, it is. As I said, this, this movie really, it really connected with me emotionally. I mean, it's, I didn't expect that from it. I, I, I loved the idea as soon as you pitched it. And when I watched the trailer, I was like, I think I'm going to enjoy this, but I had mm. no idea that I was going to connect with it so emotionally. I'm glad you really enjoyed it. All right. Anything else you want to say about boy before we move on? Uh, no, I think I pretty much covered everything. Um, do you have anything else? Uh, not specifically about, about them oh it's backtracking quite a bit oh, go but ahead when dad first shows up first of all i love that he keeps referencing et have you seen et yet <laughs> the movie i've seen it I... four times <laughs> <laughs> and and seeing et was actually a, a huge achievement for people back in the 80s like that that's i mean i remember when i had friends who had had seen it and i hadn't seen it and then when i got to go see it and i was on the side of the people who had seen it so people really did that about do have you seen et yet oh that's didn't know that <laughs> yeah the presence that he brings you know a, a roller skates and a bike mm. and a microwave I, i'm guessing yeah that well yeah i'm guessing we're supposed to just assume those have been ripped off <laughs> that's why i assume Okay. Because they don't really make Alamein out to be much of a criminal. I mean, a petty, petty criminal here or there, but that's, mm. that's almost a different level from where he is the rest of the movie. Mm. Yeah. The only reason he was in jail in the first place, I believe, was for stealing the money which he buried. True. That's true. Yeah. I didn't think about that. I guess he is supposed to be a thief. So that is totally true with his characterization. All right, let's go to the algorithm. The algorithm mm -hmm. says this is kind of a lightning round. Um, these are movies that al different algorithms have said you will like if you like this movie. And so it's kind of quick reaction to them. What do you think? Do you like them? Do you not like them? Do you not connect them with this movie? That kind of thing. 
Okay, let's do it. All right. So, Eagle versus Shark, which obviously is on there because it's also from YTE. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. The Royal Tenenbaums. Huh, Wes Anderson. Eh, maybe. I'm not sure. I haven't really ventured much into his work. Oh, it's, several of his movies showed up on that algorithm for some reason. It was uh, Royal Tenenbaums and Bottle Rocket and Life Aquatic. Huh. And they do all deal with troubled familial relationships, so I can kind of see the connection, but... Oh, that makes sense. Uh, Samoan Wedding. Um, I don't know that one, but I'm assuming it's culturally relevant. Okay. Last Summer. Again, I don't know it, so can't really say. Okay. The Boys of St. Vincent. I No, I don't know that one either. Oh, this is going <laughs> well for me. <laughs> well, write these down. Now you're coming out of the podcast with a list of movies to go see, I guess. <laughs> um, a documentary called American Movie. Again, I have no idea. <laughs> okay. And The World's End. Really? <laughs> oh. Was... Okay. Um, I suppose that one's also about an adult coming of age in his own way. Um, yeah, maybe. Thematically. Okay. I didn't think about that because Shaun of the Dead also showed up on that same algorithm. And I didn't think about that. But you're right. Edgar Wright does deal with kind of man-child syndrome. Hmm. Usually it's Nick Frost's character, but yeah. Yeah. Although in The World's End, it's not. In, no. Uh, it, in a, it's Simon Pegg's character in that one. Yeah, it's a role reversal for them both. Yeah. All right. Finally, we close with the pop quiz. It's four questions that are somewhat related to the movie. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. Number one, when it came out, Boy became the top grossing New Zealand film in New Zealand, mm -hmm. a list it has dropped to second place on. What took the top spot? A, 2014's The Dark Horse, also starring James Rolleston. B, 2014's What We Do in the Shadows, from Taika Waititi. C, 2014's The Hobbit, Battle of the Five Armies, from Peter Jackson. Or D, 2016's The Hunt for the Wilder People, from Taika Waititi. Ooh, all from the same period. Ah, um, oh, The Hobbit was filmed. I'm going to say C, The Hobbit. Nope. Actually, that one's not even considered uh, a New Zealand film because it's for an oh. American studio. Uh, oh. It was Waititi's Hunt for the Wilder People now has the top spot on that list. Oh, very well deserved. And What We Do in the Shadows is also on that list. So of the top 10 New Zealand films in New Zealand, he has three of the spots. Oh, well done to him. Number two, although incredibly different in content and scale, Boy shares a link with the HBO epic Game of Thrones. What is the link? A, they filmed in similar locations in New Zealand. B, Game of Thrones showrunner David Benioff helped workshop Boy's script. Or C, James Rolleston appeared in an episode of Game of Thrones. I think it's B, the Benioff one. Yep, Benioff was one of the people that uh, Watiti turned to to help workshop his script. Uh, number three, clearly set in 1984, Boy features a number of anachronisms due to the presence of things that weren't around until after that year. Which of the following isn't one of those anachronisms? A, the Goodnight Kiwi television slate. B, the plastic road markers Boy plays with. C, the reference to poker machines. Or D, the video game t-shirt that Boy wears. Um, is it B? 
No, they were wooden road markers in 1984, so that is an anachronism. It actually is D. The T-shirt actually was around in 1984. The other three things are anachronistic. Uh, Poker machines apparently didn't come to New Zealand until the 90s. The road markers were replaced by plastic until the 90s, and that's a, a 90s Kiwi television slate. Uh, Last question. Taika Waititi developed the screenplay for Boy under a different title. What was the original project called? A, Choice, B, Shogun, C, Alamein, or D, Potential? I think it's A, Choice. It is, yes. That was the original title, Hmm. which I'm still trying to determine how that comes into play in the movie, other than it's Boy's choice to stop looking to his father. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, that's the most obvious one. I suppose. I No, I can't really see how else it could fit in. Yeah. Maybe his choice to get a Popeyes for his friends? <laughs> yeah, maybe. So I know you've done a couple episodes of Double Edge, Double Bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, where else can people find you? What do you want to promote? Okay, well, if you want to look for me on social media, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, at, or Letterboxd at... Robbers J04. That's spelled R O D D E R S J04. Have to spell it out ever since somebody got it wrong and I didn't get something. But oh no, but I'm not bitter about it, not at all. <laughs> I also write reviews at roddersreviews.blogspot.co.uk, and I'm also a writer on flyfidelity.co.uk. You, if you look. At the time of recording, you'll see I have a review of Doctor Sleep out there. And hopefully pretty soon I'll have one up for Midway, which is exactly the type of war film you'd expect from the director of Independence Day 2. (laughs) That doesn't sound like a good thing. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) All right, James, I really appreciate you bringing this movie to me. Uh, As I said, I really deeply connected with it, and I can't thank you enough for bringing it to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me on. (laughs) Thank you, sir. So what do you think? As I said, this movie really impacted me, and I would love to get some outside takes on the film beyond just what James and I had to say. If this is a movie you haven't seen, I highly recommend checking it out, and then let me know what you think about it. You can find me at Talnhess on Twitter, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter. On Facebook, we are at Have Not Seen This Podcast, or email me at HaveNotSeenThis at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. This podcast is available on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or you can just use the RSS to subscribe through whatever podcatcher you prefer. Positive ratings and reviews would be really appreciated, although I also appreciate it if you just help spread the word so I can build up some more listeners. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard games, be sure to check out the podcast I've started with previous guests Monica Alora Siegfried and Chris Talent, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to James Rodriguez for providing this week's conversation. Maybe you have a movie you'd like to talk about, one that means something to you or you're just particularly astonished when you discover people have not seen. Come be a guest on the show. Head over to havenotseenthis.podbean.com, click the Be a Future Guest button, submit the form there, and we'll get you set up for a future episode. Until next week, I'm Rave Telsh, And this has been Have Not Seen This.